It is a beautiful day out, and we can be quite thankful for that. We are continuing our series of the Psalms. We want to do one decade, or a group of ten Psalms through the summer. Uh, so we are on uh, our fourth Sunday into that. We're on Psalm 4 here this morning. And so if you want to thumb into your Bible to Psalm 4, and once you've got it, then I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word, please. This is God's word. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call. O God of my righteousness, you have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when the grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. And you can be seated. So reading Psalm 4, you may have noticed that it very closely mirrors what we looked at in Psalm 3 last week, uh, and it actually is quite possible that these were designed that way, that this is kind of like a morning and evening devotional. Psalm 3 seems to take place in the morning, uh, because in verse 5, it talks about sleep having been in the past tense. So David wakes up, and he writes Psalm 3, uh, and Psalm 4 is a going to bed psalm. So this is... Uh, if you've ever read uh, Charles Spurgeon's Morning and Evening Devotional, it follows this format, a morning reading and an evening reading uh, and prayer time. And so this could very well be, and likely is, the evening counterpart to Psalm 3, which is a morning devotional. And these psalms, last week's and this week's, are similar in many regards, uh, and they are helpful for those of us Christians who may struggle with anxiety or with depression uh, or with discouragement. Uh, and I'm assuming there's probably a, a few of us that know those struggles. And what we can learn here is a godly blueprint for dealing with those kinds of things. And so we learned that in Psalm 3. We're going to learn it again in Psalm 4. Uh, and so if there's a bit of overlap and a bit of repetition, it's not just my fault. You can take it up with David once you're in heaven. This is important for us. It's a, it's a little bit like in the, in 1 Timothy uh, when we... Uh, kind of cover the same material, we, we're just following the text, and so we go where the text has us, and if God repeats something, that must mean it's important, okay? And, and so we don't need to uh, feel bad for going over the same ground twice. God must think we need that. So in verse 1, it says, to the choir master with string instruments, a psalm of David. So we know this is a psalm of David. There's 150 psalms in your Bible, 75 of them, or exactly half, are written by David, and the other half are written by various... Uh, musicians. And so again, when we look at the psalm, it says here, the psalm of David, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. It starts with a note of desperation or of need, right? What does David start with? It says, Answer me. And so this again sounds like uh, a, a cry from an anguished heart or from a desperate heart. God, I'm in it again. 
answer me, please, I need your help, please answer me. And that is immediately followed up by David calling God the God of my righteousness. Okay, and I think this is important because there's an acknowledgement early on in this psalm that David even can approach God in prayer, that he needs to be righteous to stand before God. Okay? You don't go before a king just in your barn clothes uh, and start making demands of him. Okay, David knows, he acknowledges at the beginning of this prayer, for me to even talk to God, I must be holy, I must be perfect, I must be righteous. And he realizes, and we saw this in Psalm 3, uh, that really all of David's problems in Psalm 3 are a direct result of his sin. He commits adultery, uh, and he is promised as a, as a consequence of that adultery, not that God won't forgive him, but that there is going to be an everlasting war in his family. Okay? His children will turn on each other. There's going to be civil war in the kingdom of Israel because David was unfaithful sexually. So David's not appealing to his own righteousness. He of all people is aware, keenly, that he is not righteous in himself. But he calls to the God of his righteousness, right? So what is the righteousness that David approaches God with is God's own righteousness. He's covered in the righteousness of God, and on that basis, he can make appeal to the king. And this really is a picture of the gospel. We are saved the same way today, not by our own righteousness, but by a righteousness that covers us. And Jesus earned that righteousness as a man, and we are covered with it. Okay? So when, when God looks at us, he's not seeing me, He's seeing me covered in the righteousness of Christ. So when we're in that witness stand, just like David approaching God's throne, uh, what, the, what the king is seeing is not a, a wretched sinner. He is seeing someone who is perfect, who is absolutely spotless, absolutely sinless, perfectly righteous, because Jesus has covered this person with his righteousness. And so there's a picture of the gospel, even in David's appeal to God. And of course, when we appeal to God on these terms, any sense of self-sufficiency is utterly destroyed. The very act of prayer is a rejection of self-sufficiency, because we're saying, I, I can't do this. I need help. I need you, God. Uh, I, I, I'm not enough. Okay? Uh, and so prayer in itself is a, is a denial of self-sufficiency. We saw in Psalm 3, and we see here again, that David, uh, when he looks forward, he's also looking back to see how God has delivered in the past, how God has been faithful in the past. And he says that here, he says, You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Okay? And so the fact that God will hear us tomorrow uh, isn't the result of some kind of impersonal law of nature, right? Or, you know, like, uh, that gravity just operates because that's just what gravity does. God just answers prayer because that's just what God does. Uh, it doesn't work quite like that. Okay? Uh, any law, whether it's a biblical law or a law of nature, uh, these things themselves are not self-sustaining or self-sufficient. Okay? It's not like God came across this universe, and then as he was kind of showing himself around here to see how this thing worked, he, he stumbled on this box, and this box says the laws of nature. Okay? And so God had to start recognizing the laws of nature in this universe that he finds himself in. All laws are a reflection of who God is. This is how he cares for, how he sustains his creation. And so the fact that God has answered David in the past uh, isn't just because this is just God is, you know, his hands are tied. He's God, so he has to listen to prayer. Not at all. It's an act of his graciousness, of his kind disposition to his children. It's on that basis that God is faithful to answer future prayers. And that's how we can look back and see that God has also been faithful in the past. Not because his hands were tied, but because he, in his very nature, in his very self, is gracious and kind and patient with us. Okay? And so when we think about how God works, or again, even in the laws of nature, 
the movement of planets, whatever, uh, don't think that these are just self-sustaining things. They're being upheld by God. God is running the whole system, including your prayers and how he uh, is pleased to answer them. He's not compelled. So God does in fact hear David's prayers because David approaches him as a righteous man. David has been forgiven of all his past sin, and he committed some real grievous ones, right? Last week we saw how he had committed adultery with a woman, impregnated her, tried to cover it up by getting her husband home from battle to sleep with her so that her pregnancy had a, a natural explanation. This man is so loyal to the king that he refuses to even go into his own house and sleep with his own wife. Okay, that's how loyal he is to the man who just betrayed him with adultery. And so David finally resorts to killing him. That is disgusting sin upon disgusting sin. And God forgives him. God says, righteous. You are righteous. You are without fault, David. I see no problems with you because you are covered in the righteousness of my son. And this approach, seeing the righteousness of Christ covering us, how God forgives us of our sins, uh, is an important dividing line between believer and unbeliever. Because the Bible is equally clear that God refuses to hear the prayers of unrighteous men. Okay? He shuts his ears. And it's not that he's not aware of it. He just refuses to answer those prayers because he doesn't hear them. Okay? They're not approaching him the right way. Uh, and so he is not compelled at all to answer those prayers, but he does hear the, the prayers of his children. Okay? Uh, and again, to think of a throne room analogy, if someone just waltzes into the king's throne room and starts making demands, does that person have any legitimacy? None whatsoever. What if the king's own son invites you in and says, you know what, my father has promised me that whoever I bring in front of him, he is pleased to do good to that person. Okay, and so now we are escorted into the throne room by the king's own son, uh, and, and we have a promise from the king that he will do good to us. Now we have a legitimate claim on the king's kindness. Okay? This is what the gospel does. This is the dividing line between those uh, who can talk to God as a father and those who only have God as a fierce judge over them. This is an important dividing line, not just in terms of what happens to your soul when you die and, and whether you'll be resurrected to eternal life or to eternal death. It also makes a difference now. Does God hear you or does he close his ears to you? Okay? Those who, have, uh, who are too proud to receive the forgiveness that are offered by the Son do not have any claim to this kingly throne. They only know a judge. And to ask things of a father or of a God uh, without wanting him first is to say that I believe I am the most important thing in the universe. Right? And think of giving gifts to our children. Do our children just want us because of the stuff that we give them? Okay? Is that what we want? Just entitled people who just want stuff? Okay? The gift giving is a reflection of me as a father. I love my children, therefore I am pleased to give them gifts. And the children, if their disposition is right, don't want us just for our gifts. They want us for who we are. They want the connection. And this is true in the gospel as well. We don't just get gifts from God in a self-serving way. If we want the gifts without the giver, our heart is disordered. Okay? The gifts are meant to show us how kind the giver is, but God is the ultimate gift. God is the ultimate jewel of creation, uh, and we must want him ultimately. Otherwise, we're using him as a vending machine and saying, my goals, my plans, I am the most important thing in this universe. We will live for my glory, and God is a useful tool for me on the way to my journey of self-satisfaction. And that is wrong. That is devastatingly wrong. Okay? David doesn't see God that way. David wants God for who God is, and then he is pleased to receive all these gifts 
because he serves a kind father. Because David is in the mess he is in, his requests are both real and urgent. Okay? And because David is trusting God, he recognizes his need for grace even at the very outset of this prayer. And that always reminds me of the lyrics that I think we often sing from Amazing Grace that I think we just skip over. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." The fact that I'm scared of God is a gift from God. Okay? It's a gift of God to feel shame, to feel guilt, to be scared of God. That itself is part of the gift of grace. Okay? How else will you receive forgiveness if you're not scared of what is rightfully coming to you? Okay? "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." Okay? David fears God because he knows he's a sinner, and it's grace that has caused this disposition in his heart to say, I, I can't do this. God, I'm trusting you, and I'm coming to you because you've covered me in your righteousness. Not because I'm a good man, because you have forgiven me. You have put your righteousness on me. Okay? And so we see early on in this psalm another picture of how the gospel is the tool even to address our emotional and our mental problems. Okay? This really is. The gospel has handles on our emotions, on our mental turmoil. We keep reading on in verse 2 and 3. It says, O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call on him. And these verses clearly lay out the struggle that we have in our experience of how often God seems slow to answer, right? We want quick delivery. I want my problems to be behind me fast. And God often, apparently, seems to think that fast isn't the way. Slow is the way. Okay? And we also see uh, a sharp dividing line, again, between the righteous and the unrighteous uh, in different ways of thinking that are laid out in these verses. Uh, one of the, well, probably the greatest preacher in the first 500 years of the church was a man by the name of John Chrysostom. Chrysostom literally means golden mouth. Okay? He, was, he was a sought-after preacher in, in the mid-400s. Okay? Uh, and John Chrysostom, this is the, the Puritan Thomas Brooks, writing about Chrysostom here in his book called uh, Precious Remedies Against Satan Devices. And this is what he says about Chrysostom on these verses. Chrysostom once said that if he were the fittest in the world to preach a sermon to the whole world, gathered together in one congregation, and had some high mountain for his pulpit, from whence he might have a prospect of the old world in his view, and were furnished with a voice of brass, a voice as loud as the trumpets of the archangel, that all the world might hear him, he would choose to preach upon no other text than this in the Psalms. O men, how long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Psalm 4, verse 2. Okay? Chrysostom saw in this verse two ways of being. Okay? The lies of the world, unbelieving ways of thinking, and those, like David, who put their trust humbly in the Lord. And you see David's frustration uh, when he sees that the wicked often seem to have the upper hand. Okay? And if you're like David, or if you're like me, you often see that, right? How often do we see that God's enemies seem to have the upper hand. It looks like they're winning. It looks like they're taking advantage of people. It looks uh, like their victory is inevitable. And why is God blessing these wicked people? And then we know some sweet Christian who is struggling what seems like an, un, you know, an unfair or incredibly painful journey. How can that be? Right? This guy's making his next billion, and this sweet, godly woman 
uh, is suffering through painful cancer. Where are you, God? David sees that, and it's a real problem for him. He sees that his sins are forgiven. He wants to serve the Lord. Uh, and yet he sees his enemies frequently getting the upper hand on him. So what does he do with this? Well, David knows that his place is a place of honor because he's forgiven. And yet he also knows that God is patient in the way he lets these stories play out. Okay, So it may seem like David is being put to shame, and he's honest about that. And we talked last week, right? It's, it's not a sin to complain to God. God loves it when we complain to Him. What's wrong is when we complain about Him. Okay? Uh, we never complain about God, but do complain to God. Right? And, and I mentioned this last week, but this is important. So often you read the Psalms and you see this deep emotional turmoil. And there's the like, answer me, God, how long? Say something, do something. Okay? Uh, and, and instead of being offended by that, God says, that's really good. That's scripture. Okay? What you just said, crying out to me in frustration, in anguish, seeing no way ahead of you, that's really good. I want that in the Bible. I'm putting that in the Bible, and I want people to be reading it and singing it in 2,000 years from now, in 3,000 years from now, that's really good. Okay? So it's okay to be honest with God when you're struggling, to cry out to God, to ask Him, say, God, you promised me you wouldn't leave me or forsake me, and I just, you're nowhere. Okay? My prayers just hit the ceiling and they bounce down. You're not anywhere. God, do something. God loves that. He loves that. Okay? Understand His promises. Personalize them. If you are a believer, God's promises belong to you. And He loves to be reminded of them, not because He's forgetful, but because we need to internalize those promises. We need to sit there long enough for these to get into our bones. So, when we are struggling, we see the wicked prospering, we see God is seemingly slow to answer, things aren't going the way we want. What do we do? Well, again, we see that God often seems to get maximum glory in these cliffhanger stories. God loves to stack the entire deck against himself, and then he acts. Okay? Uh, and this is to show his power over all these evil forces. He, he, he makes the story as lopsided as he possibly can. He puts all the chips on one side of the table, and then he delivers in a way that nobody saw. And so... Uh, a turn of phrase I like to use about this is that God offers just-in-time salvation, or he likes to say just after the nick of time, right? All the options are exhausted. There's no way out of this mess. Uh, if it's a lost cause, God saves just after the nick of time, after all hope is lost. And, and quoting on this, God's frequent way of working in the Bible, but also all through human history, even after the Bible, uh, writing in his book called Idols to Destruction, Herbert Schlossberg uh, writes it with Charles Colson. And I think this is a great line uh, from here, because I think they see it right. Uh, and so Schlossberg is saying, The Bible can be interpreted as a string of God's triumphs gloriously disguised as disasters. Okay? How does God triumph? Through disaster. Through everything falling apart. That's how he wins. That's how he gets us to the next step. Uh, and there's a story, not a Christian story, but there was a, the most highly decorated Marine in U.S. history was a man by the name of Chesty Polar. World War II vet, tough as nails, uh, and he is a Marine in the Korean War, uh, and he's on a ship that gets surrounded by 29 Korean ships, and everyone's kidding, we are in deep trouble. And Chesty Puller says, nope, they can't get away now, okay, we've got them right where they want them, or we've got them right where they want them, we can shoot in any direction and we're going to get them, right? This couldn't be any better for us, right? That's the eyes of faith, that's a man who sees 
uh, that God tells interesting stories just after the nick of time. They can't get away now when you're surrounded by your enemies. It's often important for us and the purposes of God for us to sit in our troubles for long enough that the lesson is not lost, however. Okay? Uh, and what happens if there's immediate rescue? You learn nothing. Okay? Think of raising little kids, and they keep doing the same dumb thing after another, and, and you always pull them away from the light socket. Eventually, you know what? The best thing that can happen now, electrocute yourself. Okay? That's how you're going to learn. Okay? Don't pee on the electric fence. Don't pee on the... Okay, yeah, you know what? Pee on the electric fence, and, and it won't happen again. Okay? Uh, and we are the same kind of children. We need to do this. We need to learn the hard way. If God just always pulls us away from the light socket, we learn nothing. Okay? God often is pleased to let us sit in our problem, to sit in the swamp for long enough that we actually learn. We actually see the consequences for our actions or for our mindset, and we have to sit there long enough. Uh, and as much as we want quick rescue from these situations, the, the fact is we have to sit there. There's no way to short-circuit this. There's no shortcuts uh, to learning the lessons that God would have us learn. We have to go through it uh, properly. We can't take shortcuts. We have to deal with it head on. And so you'll see in our own stories, of our own lives, that we have found ourselves in, as well as in the Bible, is that struggle, delay, setback, and disaster are God's normal way of advance. Okay? Think about this. All through the Bible, why not just give Abram and Sarah children when they're in their 20s? Have you ever thought about that? Why doesn't Sarah just get pregnant as a 22-year-old woman? Why not? Would have saved a lot of grief. Would have saved a lot of heartbreak. But that's not the way God wanted to do it. Why let Pharaoh go through all ten plagues? Why not just give Pharaoh a repentant heart the first time Moses and the Aaron confront him? Why go through all? Why destroy an entire economy and millions of people? That's the story God wanted to tell. Okay, that's the story He wanted to tell. There was no short circuiting it. Okay, why not? Uh, why didn't God spare the temple in Jerusalem so that Ezra and Nehemiah wouldn't have to come back and build a whole city from ruins? Why not just preserve it in the first place? God wasn't interested in that story. He's interested in this story. Okay. Uh, why didn't Jesus show up to Mary and Martha and Lazarus three days earlier before Lazarus died? Why not just keep him alive? It's not an interesting story. Jesus wanted to wait till after Lazarus was dead, till there's no hope. Okay? And you all need to sit in having no hope for three days, and then God will deliver. That's the way God tells stories. That's the way God moves things along. That's the way the kingdom of God advances. Okay? So disaster is God's camouflage. It's how he hides his actions from the unbeliever. It, only, it looks like disaster all around, and what happens? The kingdom of God advances. Okay? God's people are strengthened. How does that work? I, I don't know, but this is the way God does it. Okay? And Jesus' own life. Why not just show up here and then just advance straight to glory? Why go through all the hardship of, of fleeing the Egyptians and uh, being up against the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin? Why not just advance straight to glory and be ascended on the day after he was born? Because that's not the story God tells God does this through difficulty. Okay? Disaster is God's camouflage. And one of the key differences between those who have the eyes of faith and those who don't, those who are godly and those who are ungodly, is that we can see through the circumstances to the purposes of God. Okay? The godly can see through the facts and see meaning. Okay? Uh, all unbelievers have is just what's in front of their nose. Things don't connect. They, they can't connect because there's no overarching story. 
because there's no overarching storytelling. It's just molecules, motion, just how things operate. It's how hydrogen reacts at this temperature. It doesn't mean anything beyond that. Okay? But God is the master storyteller, so everything resolves, everything connects. Um, there's a, uh, a 19th century Russian playwright and author by the name of Anton Chekhov. Uh, and when he is offering advice to young writers, he says this, never waste any details. If in chapter 3 somebody puts a gun down on the mantle, make sure that by chapter 11 somebody has used that gun. Don't waste details. Okay? And, and so this principle of not wasting details is called Chekhov's gun. Okay? Uh, and God is the greatest storyteller, and so, of course, he follows this advice better than Chekhov does. There are no wasted details. If it happened in chapter 3, you might not know for a long time, and on this side of eternity, maybe never. Why did that have to happen? I don't know. Right? Or sometimes we see two or three little connections that God has made, and, and our skin tingles, and we get goosebumps because, oh, well, clearly God's been at work, because there's like three points of connection here with these people. Okay, well, what about the 10 million you don't see? What about that? We see so little. And, and sometimes we see none of it at all. But God is working. Okay? God is a storyteller. There are no wasted details in what God is doing. And so for us as Christians, to see the eyes of faith, even if we don't know what he's doing or what he's up to, we can always answer this question about anything that happens. That why is this happening? For the why question, we always know one thing is true. At the very top, why is this happening? For God's glory. What are all the steps? I don't know. Where is this going? I don't know. But I do know this. It's for God's glory. Otherwise, it wouldn't be happening. Okay? Well, yeah, but Matt, but lots of bad stuff happens because sin is involved. And so, is sin part of the story? Yep. Yep. Okay? And, and that doesn't mean we want to be guilty of uh, what the Bible tells us not to do, of calling evil good or good evil. It's not saying that. But it must be good that evil is allowed into the story or else it wouldn't be there. Okay? Uh, God would keep it out of the story if it wasn't supposed to happen. And so even if there's sin and, and impure motives or whatever involved in the struggle that you are facing, we do know this, it's for God's glory. It's for God's glory. There might be 35 steps or there might be one, but it's ultimately for God's glory. He is bringing glory to himself and he is making you more holy if you are a Christian. Okay? And, and, and think again, if evil and opposition aren't there, uh, there's nothing interesting happening. Okay? If you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, who's read Pilgrim's Progress? Everybody should. Every Christian should read Pilgrim's Progress. It's a wonderful story. Uh, it's an allegory for the Christian life written by John Bunyan in the 1600s. Okay? Uh, and if you've read that story, would it be an interesting story if Christian just shows up uh, and he's in the city of destruction and then there's a 30-foot flat walk with a nice paved sidewalk to the city, or to the celestial city? That's the story. Is that an interesting story? No, it's not. What if there's a slew of the spawn and a wicked gate, okay, and a dark river, and Vanity Fair, and there's struggle to get through all of these things? Is that an interesting story? You bet it is. You bet it is, okay? And again, so for us as Christians, for us who are godly, uh, our task is to see through the circumstances, to see the God behind these circumstances who is working all things according to his purpose. And if you are a Christian, you know this promise from Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good to those who love the Lord. Okay? If you are a Christian, your tough circumstances are there to make you more holy. Okay? And being set apart here, again, isn't something that we did. By nature, we're always stuck in our circumstances and can't see beyond them. 
By our nature, we're always living for our own glory instead of God's glory. And this is why Jesus' confrontations with the Pharisees are often so pointed. Right? He teaches in John 6 uh, that we can't come to God on our own. Okay? And this isn't because God is pushing us off. That's not when he says you can't come to the Father. He's not saying God is pushing you away. The reason you can't come to the Father is because you don't want to. Okay? In your, in your nature, you don't want to. There's nothing in you that wants God. There's nothing in you that wants the gospel. There's nothing in you that wants forgiveness. We enjoy our sin by nature. Okay? Uh, so even that, the eyes to see, uh, is a gift from the Lord. It must be. We won't come to Him unless we want to, and we won't want to until or unless the Holy Spirit is working, giving us new eyes, giving us ears to hear uh, and a new heart. And this is what is meant when it talks about God has set the God set apart the godly for Himself. Okay, the gospel isn't just uh, that Jesus can be your friend, although that is certainly true. The the gospel, in its full announcement in the Bible, is that God has saved us from Himself, from His wrath, His eternal displeasure. He has saved us by Himself through the work of His Son and His Spirit, and He has saved us for Himself for His ultimate glory. Okay, God saves you from Himself for Himself. By himself. Those are all important. And so the ultimate goal or the ultimate purpose or meaning behind our salvation isn't just to get our souls on the lifeboat because the Titanic is going down. Uh, the ultimate, more final meaning is because God is doing this for his own glory. He is pleased to do this. And the main storyline in scripture, we talked about this in Sunday school, this is so important because it resolves many of our questions and our confusions that we have about uh, difficult concepts in the Bible. But the main storyline of Scripture is not how to be saved. Okay, that's very important. How to be saved is very important. But salvation, personal salvation, personal sanctification, are uh, rendered in service to God's ultimate goal, which is His glory. Okay? God getting glory is the control of everything in Scripture. God wants glory for Himself. That's why you are saved. God wants glory for Himself. That's why you're going to put sin to death in your life. Okay? Uh, the, salvation serves the greater purpose, and the greatest purpose in the Bible is for God to receive glory, for us to see Him as He is. And in Sunday school, I gave the analogy of, uh, of wiring the shop. There's no, you, you don't wire a shop just for the sake of wiring it, okay? You're not just saved uh, for the sake of salvation. Why do you wire a shop? So you have electricity. There's a goal in mind. Why are you saved? To bring God glory. That's why, ultimately. Okay, uh, And so, uh, as, as important as personal salvation or putting sin to death or anything in our personal experience is, and it is important, it all serves the controlling principle of God getting glory for himself. And when we see that God's glory is the controlling principle of everything, then we are able to see through our circumstances and to see that our struggles aren't just meaningless, impersonal, chance things but they are providentially arranged events to make you more holy and to bring God more glory. And then, when we see that, of course we can agree with the psalmist that the Lord hears when I call to Him. Okay? Getting me to call on Him was part of the whole exercise in the first place. Okay? I, I wouldn't call to Him if life was just smooth. Okay? If it was just a 30-foot straight walk in perfect weather from uh, the city of destruction to the celestial city, it, nothing happens. The challenges are what gets me to call out to God. The hard parts are what humbles me, what brings me into, uh, into alignment with God's purposes for my life and for His creation. 
Okay? And so we can agree with John the Baptist that I must become less and he must become more. And this won't happen without occasions that actually exist in real life for me to become less and for him to become more. Okay? God, God grant me patience, but please hurry. Okay? Well, no. God grant me patience, and what happens? We find ourselves in circumstances where we have to start exercising the patience that he's working on giving us. That's how this works. Okay? We won't just be humbled without things to humble us. We won't get soft without things to soften us. Okay? And so our calling out in desperate prayer is the single greatest admission that we can make that God is God and we are not. And our theology and prayer, Charles Spurgeon noted this, that no one is self-sufficient when they're praying. Okay? No one's trusting in their own will when they're praying. The act of prayer means your theology is sound. You're calling out to God. Okay? God is sufficient. So in our, in our prayers, our theology is almost always better than it is in spoken word. Spoken word, we can give ourselves certain credit for certain things. Prayer removes that. Why pray to God for something that I can pull off? Well, it makes no sense. We pray because we need God. We're trusting in His sufficiency. Okay? In prayer, we're not thinking about all the things that we are contributing toward, uh, to our deliverance. We are trusting the hands of the Father. Okay? Just like a small child trusts their parents for provision. Mom and Dad have to feed me. Mom and Dad have to clothe me. Mom and Dad have to do this for me. Uh, otherwise, I am in deep trouble. Then carrying on, verse 4 and 5, it says, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Say love. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Okay? So we talk about all this big God theology and the glory of God. Does that mean we're just these unfeeling, inanimate objects? That we're just a bunch of rocks? Not at all. Okay? God gave you nerve endings. God gave you emotions. Okay? And it, it's entirely fitting to be realistic about this. The psalmist is realistic about it. Okay? He's not plowing through with a stiff upper lip. He's owning these emotions. He's a, he's a real human. He's got nerve endings, he's got emotions, and he's leaning into them. He knows they're real. Okay? And David even acknowledges here explicitly that he knows he has permission from God to be angry. Okay? Sometimes really wicked things happen. Sometimes powerful people will abuse their power and trample on the weak or on the disadvantaged. Okay? Sometimes a mob gets so riled up with envy and rage that they grasp at things that don't really belong to them. And when we see those things, it's okay to be angry. It's okay to be angry uh, at unrighteousness and at wickedness in this world. In fact, it's fitting. If you have a heart for God's law, of course it will make you angry when, uh, when the world is rejecting it. Okay? So there's not a, a prohibition here about being angry. There's a prohibition about being sinful when you're angry. Okay? The anger isn't the problem. The sinful retaliation is. Okay? So be angry, but do not sin. One of the most obvious ways that we sin in our anger is to burst out in violence or in, in retaliation. But an increasingly popular way to deal with frustration or anger uh, is to internalize it in these feelings of victimhood and, and, and victim identity. Okay? Uh, and this is becoming very popular. You know, someone in my family was mistreated somewhere back there, uh, and so my tribe needs some special treatment now because we got it pretty bad somewhere else. Okay? Uh, and this is leading to a different kind of gospel in our own culture, where the, the way you are saved is by being more victimized than the next person. Okay? What makes you righteous? Well, I was treated more poorly than someone else. I'm righteous. Uh, they're privileged. They're unrighteous. They are far from the kingdom. And here I am, having been mistreated my whole life. I'm righteous. That's an alternate gospel. 
and trivialize to those who have gone through legitimately difficult things. So whichever side of the road we're tempted with, however we're tempted to turn our frustration and our anger into sin, we must stop ourselves from going there. David tells us to ponder these things in our hearts. He tells us to be on our bed and to be silent. And this doesn't sound like the stuff of mobs demanding social justice or some kind of you know, retribution now. It doesn't sound like the latest round of the oppression Olympics. Nor does it sound like a violent man striking back in anger and frustration at an opponent. The picture we get is a picture of patience, endurance, and of letting the suffering last long enough and hurt for long enough that it's actually going to do its work. Okay? It's like a steak marinating long enough or wine aging long enough that it's actually valuable. You, you can't short circuit this. You can't take a shortcut. You have to go through the process if you want to get something of value at the end. So our struggles may well, like David's, include multiple nights of restlessness, wrestling with our thoughts in our bed in silence. And I think this is also important that he points to silence. We don't live in a very silent time, right? There's always something going. Uh, for myself, I listen to hours and hours of podcasts in a week, but there's always something happening in my ears, okay? Uh, other people like music, all the, and there's nothing wrong with any of this. This is good. Music is good. Podcasts are good. But do we ever let the silent be loud enough that we actually think about life? Okay. One of the ways we push off reality is to always occupy ourselves with some kind of busyness. Always have the TV on. Always be playing on your phone. Always be playing video games. And that's a way that we short circuit. That's the way we try to avoid reality by always making ourselves busy. By making things loud. Okay. And so don't hear me that you shouldn't listen to music or you shouldn't listen to podcasts. It's all good. But also leave some time for silence. To wrestle with what is God doing in my life? What do I need to learn? What's the meaning of my circumstances? How can I glorify God in this? How can I put sin to death in this, in through this? Okay? And the fruit of this patient process is that our hearts get set right and we put our trust in the Lord just like David did. And he goes on to say in verse 6 and 7, There are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Okay, and so again, David sees opponents around him, mocking him, scoffing at him. They seem to have the upper hand. But the good that they have in mind in their scoffing is, is a material good, right? Grain and wine. Okay? Uh, and so they think that God's favor is just automatically displayed in stuff, in things. Okay? Uh, but this shows their mindset that they just see God as a tool to get them what they want. Okay? God is a tool to the end of my personal fulfillment. David sees that he is a tool in the task of God glorifying himself. You see how different this is? See how backwards it is? Either we are a tool in God's hands for his eternal purposes, or God is a tool in my hands for my eternal story, for my glory, my kingdom. Okay? And, and there's two very different ways of thinking and of living here. And David sees it right. David answers that having peace with God is worth far more than anything they have. Having the humility to see how the small sacrifice of his life is part of the grand symphony that God is playing and putting his own glory on display is worth it. And this may remind us of what David Bathsheba's son Solomon says in Proverbs 15, that it is better to have a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure with trouble in it. And the good things here are grain and wine. And it's not that those, these things are bad or sinful, right? He's not contrasting the joy of the Lord with 
drunkenness and gluttony just with grain and wine. Grain and wine are good things in the Bible. Okay? Bread is good. Wine is good in the Bible. God gives it to us as a gift. Okay? Uh, so he's not saying those things are bad, but what he's saying is that his joy is deeper than the circumstances. Circumstances won't make us happy. Right? We talked about that last week. When, when, I'll speak for myself. Whenever I've set a goal for myself and I get it, I'm happy for at least seven or eight minutes. Okay? And then what happens? Well, I start taking over again. Okay? I start listening to myself instead of preaching to myself. And if you're like me, you will do that too. Right? You start listening, you start believing your own press. You start believing your own uh, thoughts in your head. Uh, and well, okay, well, yeah, now that made me happy. But now I need to move on to the next thing. So I'll be equally happy for four minutes. It, it, it doesn't work that way. Joy has to be deeper than circumstances. And you can see this in the desperation. The world just moves from one thing to the next. And this will make me happy. No, that'll make me happy. That'll make me happy. That, and, and it goes nowhere. If people who are trying to be happy never are. Never. People who trust in the Lord are happy. And it's not just surface happiness, it's joy. Okay? So when we think about being connected to the purposes of God, think of this. Who's richer? The man who has ten loaves of fresh warm bread and ten bottles of fine-aged wine, but no taste buds to enjoy them? Or the man who has one slice of bread and one glass of wine, but he has taste buds to enjoy them? Who's richer? Okay. The man with less is richer. Why? Because he sees God in it. He's got taste buds to enjoy God's gifts. Okay? The man who just says more, 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 more is never happy. Because he can't even enjoy the things God has given him. Okay? And so again, our task isn't to just accumulate and try to make uh, circumstances to numb the pain or to make us happy. Uh, it's to have taste buds to see God's purposes, to find joy in Him at the end of our rope. Okay? And so this is how the joy of the Lord operates in everyday life. It's not a kind of self-denial. It's finding joy in the story that God is telling in our life. To find meaning in it. And to find ability to enjoy even the hard parts. And then in verse 8, David says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Okay? And so if this is the evening counterpart to the morning psalm of Psalm 3, then it's fitting that David ends up with the psalm preparing for a night's sleep. He has been honest in front of God about the reality of his challenges, and then he has come to God boldly, not timidly, very specifically, being honest about his feelings. He comes to God boldly. Okay? Uh, he really means it. He's emotionally involved in his prayer. And he does this not on account of his own good behavior, but knowing that he has been forgiven of all the things that have caused his problems in the first place. Okay? David knows, as a forgiven sinner, that he deserves any and every hardship and curse and difficulty that is going to come his way. But he can come boldly to the throne of God as a righteous man because his sin has been forgiven, and he has been covered with the perfect righteousness that God has covered him with. He acknowledges his frustration that he's being put to shame by God's enemies and by mockers, while he remains silent. But he remembers that the Lord sets apart a people for his own glory, and he is able to turn this anger into contemplation, which will result in him trusting the Lord more deeply and finding much deeper joy than could be found in any kind of experiential circumstance. And by the end of working through it all, David is able to lie down at night with the expectation of sleep, knowing that it is the Lord and the Lord alone who has made him to dwell in safety. So how do we apply this to ourselves? Well, I think many ways can't apply for this many people. We all want to be reasonable and make application ourselves. 
But here's a few things to think about in our own circumstances as much as they will vary. These psalms are timely, living as we do in an age of self-expression, of living in self-rule, autonomy, and designer spirituality. Right? How many people do you know that are spiritual but not religious? Right? Probably lots, right? Because designer spirituality. I want God, I just don't want him to tell me anything. Right? As long as I get to control him, I'm, I'm spiritual, I'm just not religious. Right? I, I don't care about the God who's there. The Jesus that Jesus to me, uh, uh, my custom deity, my own personal Jesus, as Johnny Cash saying, uh, is no threat. Okay? But we need to get ourselves not into spiritual but not religious, but to the purposes of the God who is actually there, to the God who is actually speaking. Okay? We all face things which we're going to find discouraging, confusing, angering, and sometimes they might even legitimately be catastrophic. Okay? None of this is a self-denial of human experience, not at all. It's leaning into human experience, but with meaning. The psalmist shows us how to turn a profit on these things, however. He's not just showing us how to cope and how to grin and bear it and get through it with white knuckles, but how the trials actually are serving God's purposes and our ultimate joy and peace. What trials do is they bring us to the end of our rope, and here's a principle that is 100% true 100% of the time. When we are at the end of our rope, we cry out to your God. Okay? Everyone cries out to what they truly believe is God when they're at the end of their rope. Okay? Watch. If you don't know what someone's religion is, who do they call out to when things get tough? Me? Right? My self-sufficiency? My stiff upper lip? Maybe my bank account? I've made a lot of money. I can buy my way out of any trouble. Right? Is, that, is that my God? What about the government keeping me safe? Is that my God? What about my sense of identity in some kind of community? Is that my God? Just watch. Who do you call out to when you're at the end of your rope? Because whoever that is, is your God. And if it's not the God of the Bible, then make sure it is the God of the Bible. Okay? All people cry out to their gods when there is no hope left. And we will find as Christians that real joy is only found at the end of this rope. Because for us to be happy, we have to know who we are. And even more importantly, we have to know who God is. And we will not learn that apart from difficulty. I shared the poem, or I didn't share the poem, but I referenced it last week. The poem Invictus. It was often read at graduation ceremonies by William Ernest Henley. Henley was an old man when he wrote this poem. He had lost his leg, he was slowly dying, and he is facing death. And he's facing death in humiliation. And as someone who, unless there was a change of heart after this poem was written, is headed for an eternity far, far less dignifying than the one he just suffered through. He is a man who is proud and who clearly loathes God with a white-hot hatred in his heart. And contrast this, I'm going to read Invictus, and contrast this with what we've just seen David. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. You do not want to be this man facing God in eternity. No matter how difficult my life was, I am so proud I refuse to bend my neck. 
And I don't care how long the rap sheet is that God has for me, I am going unafraid into the cold, dark night. I am the captain of my ship. Do not be this man. This man is the exact opposite of David. He is a proud, self-centered man with this proud, self-centered creed of hatred against God. He is a stiff-necked man on his way to eternal wrath and horrors far worse than the ones he felt he encountered on this side of eternity. Unless he repented, I do not know. But if he died in this state, this is bad news for Henry. And how different when you contrast that with the psalmist that we just read, who has taught us to become soft, to become teachable, and to become humble when he discovers that he is not God after all. And I think C.S. Lewis points this out correctly on, on the, the Savior's left side and the right side. Those who are entering into heaven uh, say to the Lord on their way in, Thy will be done. And to those who enter perdition, the Lord is saying to them, Thy will be done. Okay? It's a, it's a question of who is Lord, whose will is being done here. And so as you think about this this morning, what kind of person are you? If the son of affliction is beating down on you, is it making you hard like clay, hard like Henry? Or is it making you soft like wax, soft like King David? Are you learning how to get over it yourself? Am I? Are you learning that your life only finds full meaning when you play your small part in God's cosmic drama? Set down your own little script and get caught up into the interesting drama that God is telling? Are you learning that if you see God as a supporting character in your little play, that not only is your story interesting, but it goes nowhere, it means nothing, it connects to nothing, comes from nowhere, means nothing now, and is going nowhere? Or are you getting caught up into the full meaning of the story that God is telling all through creation? And I'll close with one small anecdote from my own life. I shared last week that after we started farming, I struggled with, well, I would say, severe anxious depression, nervous breakdown, whatever you want to call it. I struggled with that. And it is the closest thing to hell I ever want to go through. It's extremely painful. And if you struggle with depression or are struggling with depression, uh, maybe you can relate. Okay? Uh, it's hellish. It's terrible. Because you see no good that could possibly come in any direction. If I go this way, it's going to collapse on me. If I go that way, it's going to collapse on me. I'm going to lose it all. I'm a loser. Tanya doesn't want to be with a loser. She's gone. And here I am just sitting on my little empire of dirt. And of course, none of that happened. But that's how a mind works when you're in that place. After a few months of that way, God did, in fact, deliver me from depression. And he used a number of things to, to, to get me out. And it's an interesting thing. After I was on the other side of that, and again, maybe you can relate. I felt I never, ever want to go through that ever again. That was terrible. And it's the best thing that's ever happened to me. Because part of the way I got there was I was a proud, self-sufficient man. I had just pulled something off that people said was impossible by starting a farm. 27 years old, happily married, healthy little kids, and here's this empire I built. And it all meant nothing. I hated it. I wanted to get rid of everything. Okay? Because I was a proud, self-sufficient man. And had God not shattered me with his rod of iron, I don't know where that road would have ended up, but it wouldn't have been good. Okay? It was good for me. Is depression good? No, it's not. Is it good that it's part of the story? Yep. Sure is. Okay? And I want to suggest that your struggles, uh, we're not going to call evil good and good evil, but we will say it is good that God uh, didn't stop evil from entering the story. 
Because even there, he is working his purposes in your life. Okay? Maybe it's not depression. Maybe it's some other thing. But we can all make application of how to deal with challenging stuff that comes your way. You need to become soft like the psalmist. Don't go down into your grave as a proud enemy of God, like we have also seen. So let's close in prayer. Father God, thank you. Lord, you are good. Lord, and even uh, as David didn't understand uh, the full meaning of what was happening in his life, he didn't know where the story would go. And yet, Lord, you softened him. You taught him. Uh, you got him to sit in his trouble for long enough that the lesson stuck. That he saw that you are God and he is not. Lord, and I pray for each one here this morning as you work your purposes in our lives. I pray that you, rather than growing in pride, rather than becoming harder and more brittle, uh, and making ourselves into an enemy of you, Lord, soften us. Teach us what you would teach us. Whether it's through mental struggles, whether it's through a tough situation at work, or financially, or in our marriages, or with our children. Lord, you know what each one's needs are, you know what each one's problems are here this morning. Lord, and only your spirit can ultimately make application for what we have learned here. Lord, but I pray that you would do that for each one of us. Have us become soft. Lord, teach us. Teach us that your purposes are always good, that you are God and we are man. Lord, and that we would live in light of that, that we would find meaning and joy in your purposes rather than in our futile little empire building. Lord, be with us as we go out from here. I pray that we would bring you glory in whatever circumstances we have faced, are facing, or will continue to face. Trust us all in your kind and fatherly hands. Pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. The charge is this. All good stories have tension, bad guys, heartbreak, and despair. There must be a dragon for there to be a St. George. There must be difficulty for Christian on the way to the celestial city. Or else there is no story at all. Because God is the greatest storyteller of all, many of his stories include difficulties that are humanly impossible. Yet somehow they always resolve with no loose ends, no extra parts, and no missing parts. The challenges you face are real. But they are not the product of you getting caught in the cold, impersonal machinery of the universe. They are there to show you who you are, and most importantly, who God is. Even if they make you angry, you are to potter them in silence on your bed. They are there to teach you to put your trust in the Lord so that you can experience more joy than physical blessings ever could. They are there to show you the path that Jesus himself had to take in order to purchase your eternal Sabbath rest. So now, as you leave this place in the spirit of that Sabbath rest, go in peace, lie down and sleep, for the Lord makes you to dwell in safety. And I'll leave you the benediction from Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7. Please receive it. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.